How could you just leave him? The spider's question, and all the bitterness and accusation implicit in it, is directed at Valerian, but it is Trace who answers. You didn't see him, spider. He was gone. There was nothing left of Flint in there. Just a machine. You sent us into hell. Be grateful even the two of us made it back. That's not quite true, though, and she knows it. All of them do. Hell was not the great machine, twisted and alien as it might have been. Hell was what lay beyond that portal. The source of the infernal powder, the demon dimensions. The place from where intelligences, greater and darker by far than man's, powers vast and raging and unsympathetic, regarded this world with envious eyes, and slowly and surely drew their plans against us. Her stomach knots in terror at the mere concept of it, and she fumbles for the safer ground of attack. It's not like ours was the only screw-up either, was it? The nails destroyed, our involvement paraded openly in front of half the city's major players, and out the fucking undying at our throats, and you come away with nothing to show for it? You're hardly in a position to throw stones, Spider. At least we fulfilled our mission. The crew descend into an uneasy, recriminatory silence. This crew, this web, has always had its fault lines, of course, but those faults have never been anything like this exposed, this raw. It feels as though, in the face of no forward path, everything is unravelling. That this is the bitter end. An actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master, and your guide as we follow our heroes on their journey into the unknown. For this game, I'll be using the Blades in the Dark rule set, as well as a variety of other systems, tools, and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning the following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, Bravo Team successfully infiltrated the lower workings of the Great Machine, and Trace was able to learn the secret of the Infernal Powder. Machine priestesses of the cult were summoning demons through a tear in dimensional reality, and destroying them as part of some horrific manufacturing process. Barely keeping it together, Trace had fled only to discover that Flint had succumbed to the siren lure of the Codex Mechanicus, and drunk of the machine oil in an attempt to learn the truths of the great machine. Doing so had triggered a horrific transformation. Flint was slowly being turned into a creature of living metal, an extension of the machine. I did mention that the consequence at the end of the last chapter was going to sting, and so it did. I rolled lose something important on the consequence oracle, and given that the position was desperate, that meant Trace was going to lose something very important. It could really only be one of the party, right? 
I rolled to confirm it, and sure enough, Flint was toast. However, I rolled a yes, but that suggested he wasn't just dead. There was something else at play here too, and so I asked the oracle, what do you mean, but? The images I got were a spooky man and a poisonous mushroom. In the context of what had been going on, what with Flint getting more and more absorbed in the Codex over the course of the chapter, this could only mean that the poison was machine oil and that the spooky, goggle-eyed figure was Mecha Flint. To compound the cosmic horror we'd seen down in the summoning chamber, Trace was now going to be subjected to some good old-fashioned body horror. It's probably also worth talking briefly about POV here. When Trace was forced to go solo, the narrative talking stick was passed to her, and it stayed with her for the remainder of the chapter. Although Valerian has been the primary character for this team up until this point, the fact that Trace had to go solo for part of the last chapter meant that it was logical to move the narrative focus onto her, and hopefully to good effect. It gave us, and well, by us I mean me, a good opportunity to get inside her head and find out who she is beyond that prickly, snarky exterior. It also provided the opportunity to see Valerian from the outside for a change. A couple more notes on that last scene from the last chapter. I knew from Trace's character sheet that she was originally a courier and also a worshipper of the trickster. And so her coping mechanism, when faced with things no transactional street rat should be faced with, was to retreat into her faith. This is too big. Let me call on something that I feel I understand and that is bigger than me. Of course, this character introspection was all creative writing. No oracles involved here. But I think this is one of the most rewarding parts of solo role-playing. You can jump into a character, any character in your party, with a mechanical basis for their personality and have them react to the stimuli that they face. How does this differ from pure creative writing? Well, frankly, not at all, and nor should it. Sometimes solo RPGing is criticised as nothing more than an exercise in creative writing, as if the creative writing part is somehow a bad thing. But to me, RPGs, solo or otherwise, are basically collaborative creative writing built over the framework of a guiding rule set, alongside a mutually agreed social contract. The more RP-heavy your game group, the more you skew to the creative end of the spectrum. In a face-to-face game, it's more like acting than writing, but regardless, it's a process of creatively exploring your character, based on known starting points. And let's face it, that's the end of the RPG spectrum I, and I suspect probably most folks that are listening to this podcast, tend towards. That's what face-to-face RPGs are at their best, untrammeled creativity. Sure, you riff off one another, and there's plenty of in-the-moment improv going on. It's real-time collaborative creativity. But it's still basically just creative writing, done in a group. In a solo game, you lose the collaborative part, but what you lose there, you gain in space and time. Space and time to explore and inhabit your PC, or to jump from one PC to the next, to reflect and explore and see the world through different sets of eyes. Now, arguably that's just what a novelist does, inhabiting one character after another, living their lives through their inner monologues and their actions. What differs, I think, between the novelist and the solo RPG player is that in a solo RPG, you genuinely have no idea what's coming next. There's no plan, 
no structure, your creation, your character, is skating on the thin ice of your fictional construction. A construction that's being created for them as they go. Nothing exists until it has to, and when a reality is required, it's beyond the remit of the author to define it. Artificial intelligence steps in to make those choices for you. Sometimes that artificial intelligence takes the form of an oracle. You consult your oracle to learn, does this happen, does that happen, why, how, who's responsible, what's their goal? But all that is missing a fairly crucial point. AIs are at work even in group RPGs. They are, in part, what distinguishes RPGs from simple collaborative writing exercises. The challenge resolution mechanic, or the roll of the dice, is what transforms a simple storytelling process into a game into a process that's laden with unpredictability and uncertainty, and all those things we humans love so much. That's equally true in group RPGs as in solo ones. All we do in solo RPGs, to poorly co-opt a DevOps analogy, is to shift the degree of AI control a little bit to the left. Because there's no denying we do love our games, whether it's purely based on skill, at the more deterministic, chess-like end of the spectrum, or based on random luck, like Snakes and Ladders, or Monopoly, or ideally, somewhere in between. We humans love games. They combine the challenge of developing a skill set that supersedes our rivals, and the delight of plunging into the unknown. At their best, games allow us to explore risk, in a largely risk-free environment. And there is huge benefit to us in doing so. As George Bernard Shaw so astutely noted, you don't stop playing when you get old, you get old when you stop playing. Games keep us fresh and alert and sharp. They challenge and they test us. They keep us curious and excited and engaged. They ask us, what comes next? Well, why don't we find out? She needs to stamp on this, hard and fast. If she doesn't, this risks being the end of them. Looking around the room, the spider can see the damage written large across her team. Crater lost to Dreamdust, Trace playing the voice of reason, Valerian shell-shocked and silent. This is a crew on the verge of falling apart. They need some good news, or at the very least, distraction. Probably for the best, then, to keep the news from them that Frake, Flint's locksmith contact, has dropped off the grid. If the word on the street is to be believed, he's been picked up by the Bluecoats right after the Mustang went down, and hasn't been seen since. No prizes for guessing the focus of that particular interrogation. The net is tightening around them. That much is plain. As her uncle was so fond of saying, if you look for the dark, that is all you will ever see. And right now, it's hard to imagine ever seeing anything else, because... Her next piece of news is hardly rainbows and sunbeams either. But there's no benefit in dancing around it. Best just to press on. You're right, Trace, and I apologise. The intelligence you brought back is invaluable. And although our lead into the unseen is blown, we have not ended up entirely empty-handed either. During our absence, I had my contacts set to work, and I have received word back... It would seem that reports of the demise of the House of Whispers are somewhat premature. The proposed wedding between Houses Tereth and Montessario is already bearing fruit, apparently. And allies, if 
not exactly flocking to their side, do appear to be actively courting them. A new power block is starting to emerge, and one with the potential to make a serious mark. She prays for a bite, and thankfully, Valerian does not disappoint. What sort of mark? The spider smiles and leans back into her chair. If my sources are to be believed, a block formed of houses Montessario and Tereth, along with the Seekers of Troon and a handful of others, mean to force the Archdominar's hand in the Tanthian campaign. That gets their attention. Trace in particular. She continues, As you know, with the war in long-term stalemate, it has become a significant drain on the Imperial purse. There has been talk of reaching terms with the Tanthians. Valerian nods impatiently. This is common knowledge, at least to anyone with ears inside the corridors of power. You're saying this new block means to confound these plans, to maintain the status quo? Not exactly. You have to understand, Houses Tereth and Montessario have invested significantly into the war, and rely heavily on the profits stalemate brings. They are dangerously overcommitted and an end to the war would likely be disastrous for both of them. But if the war could be decisively won, with those houses at the vanguard, the potential rewards could be transformative. Overnight, they would become the most powerful houses in the Empire. Valerian snorts. That's as maybe, Spider, but it's one thing to dream of decisively winning the Tanthian campaign, and quite another actually doing it there's a string of sacked fleet admirals who can attest to that. True enough, Valerian. But what if I were to tell you that I have heard a little whisper that suggests the dream may about to become reality? That this group have secured the means to utterly destroy the Tanthian resistance in one decisive blow? Trace, a native of Tanth, looks ashen. Powder. You're talking about the machine cultist's Infernal Powder. Infernal Powder has been one of the key differentiators, along with airship technology, that has led to the Kairos Dominion, establishing the greatest empire the chained world has ever known. But at least until now, supply has always been very limited, restricting the use of the explosive to key tactical engagements. But... If the machine cultists have successfully industrialised the means of production, and if the House of Whispers has somehow tapped into that supply... The spider nods, gravely. I am talking about the assembly of the largest airborne armada the world has ever seen. Laden with enough infernal powder to wipe every city, town and village in the League of Free States clean off the map. I talked earlier about how much of the pleasure of a solo RPG is the gaming element, the framework, the mechanics, the AI. And sometimes that's the AI of the game itself, for example the success or failure mechanics, and sometimes that's the AI of the GM emulator, the oracles. For this last scene, it was all about the latter. I've been using the Alone in the Dark picture oracle as my tool of choice so far in this series, and I've been perfectly happy with it. But it is important to understand that any oracle comes with its own built-in set of limitations. You don't tend to see them when you're playing, because well, you don't tend to see what's not there. 
It's like the dog that didn't bark in the night. It's only when you shift to a new viewpoint that you begin to see what's missing. Now, normally, you don't shift to a new viewpoint. You decide on a process, you use it, and you get comfortable with it. Then rinse and repeat over and over. It doesn't occur to do anything different. Sometimes it takes an external change to make an internal one. A case in point. I did the prep for this chapter on a short holiday to Suffolk with my wife. Away from familiar places and routines, and provided with the space and the time and the impetus to think outside my normal patterns, my approach to my game changed. A chance find of a lovely copy of the I Ching in a second-hand bookshop, and a great suggestion from my wife, led to a little set of dominoes falling that shaped the AI component of this chapter. It occurred to me that there was no reason not to mix things up a little on the Oracle front. And so, with the crew's downtime activity pretty much complete, and imagining the spider checking in with her spies, I posed the question, what opportunities present themselves, and I consulted the I Ching. And why not? The I Ching, or Book of Change, is one of the oldest books in the world, and one of the oldest known divination systems, first composed 1,000 years BC. With that sort of pedigree, it's probably good enough for me. I ended up with hexagram 63 for my present state, Settled, and hexagram 27 for my future state, Nourishment. Take stock, observe what others do, and then act accordingly. What did this mean? Well, after a moment, I realised the I Ching's answer wasn't just directed at my party, but at me directly. I had forgotten to advance the various faction clocks, and if I did so, this would indicate where an opportunity might arise. All very meta. And so I advanced my clocks, and the one that stood out the most was a plus two to the House of Whispers clock, win House Montessario influence on the City Council. Well, that posed the obvious question, what had the House done to gain that influence? And, having enjoyed the difference in focus that the I Ching provided, I decided to switch things up again. This time, my oracle would be a tarot reading. I drew three cards representing past, present and future, and interpreted them as follows. Past. Justice. A carefully weighed decision has been taken. Present. The Queen of Wands. People are brought together. I interpreted that as the marriage of Mina and Tristan. Future, the Ace of Swords. A puzzle or challenge will be solved, and an opportunity realised. Taken together, this told me that the montessario tereth union was going to shift the balance of power away from the Archdominar. Now, we already had an inkling of this from the established fiction, and although this response provided confirmation of what had been discussed in previous chapters, it didn't really move my understanding, or that of the spider's crew, any further forward. For that, I needed to ask the really important follow-up question. Why was Alexis trying to assert political control? This question had previously been beyond Mina's ability to answer, but I figured with the resources of the web, it made sense for the spider to gain some insight. I was on a roll with mixing up my oracles, and so this time I decided to cast runestones in the form of the five-stone cross as my oracle. And my answer read just like some sort of ancient prophecy. A fall from favour will be exacerbated by an end to conflict, but an alliance with a protector can prevent that end and lead to great power. 
My interpretation was that the Archdominar was proposing the end of a war, one that had been keeping Houses Montessario and Tereth afloat. But with the proposed alliance between the two houses, as well as the support of the Church of Droom, this war could be extended and expanded, with all the new opportunities that entailed. This ties back to something Mina mentioned to Cadmus in Series 1. I don't believe for one minute that the man who killed my father was some deranged malcontent acting alone as was claimed. It was all too convenient. My father was in the way, you see, preventing the prosecution of a war on ethical grounds, a war that was ultimately waged once he was dead, and the rest of his family disgraced. A war that made Alexis, among others, very wealthy indeed. Those others, it now transpires, include House Tereth and the Church of Droom. It was established back in Series 1, Chapter 19, that Tristan was a worshipper of Droom, and that the seekers of knowledge were part of his plans for social reform of the city. And this confirms a concern that Mina had about Tristan being used as a cat's paw in someone else's game. It turns out he is, and now we know who the players are in that game. As an aside, there has been one other mention of Droom in the story so far. In Series 1, Chapter 20, Dr. Crop had this to say regarding neutralising the infernal powder. Once I had determined the origin of the substance, the next step was comparatively easy. I was able to engage the services of a devotee of Droom, who cast a blessing on the substance without their realising what it was they were blessing, of course. You know those Droomians always on the hunt for knowledge they can turn to their own purposes. An unrelated coincidence? An indication of a more nefarious conspiracy afoot? I'll play to find out, of course, but what is evident is that the seekers of knowledge are now a faction to be reckoned with. And let's face it, we have a religious order dedicated to the accumulation of knowledge. And we all know what knowledge is, right? So I've created a couple of clocks for them. Anyway, up until this point, I'd had no idea that the Empire even was still at war. But looking at my campaign source material, that idea does fit into the established timeline, and so I picked a suitable target. Tamf, home of both Cadmus and Trace. It's the continent at the end of the Great Western Chain, with a far warmer climate than the more temperate Kairas. It's sufficiently distant to serve as my scrappy band of rebels resisting the Imperial yoke, and it was at this point that a light bulb lit up in my head. In the spirit of combining threads, could this escalation of war be linked to the infernal powder? The oracle said, critical yes. Plans were in motion to turn the infernal powder stockpile into the biggest carpet-bombing campaign in history, and to turn the League of Free States into a smoking wasteland. This revelation does raise an interesting potential conflict. It seems the Allied Houses planned to use the cult's explosive stockpile to prosecute their war, and the only way they could know about that stockpile, at least the only way I can think of, is based on Mina's report back to the House of Whispers. But, of course, there's something the Houses, and the Web, don't know. Mina is still entirely undecided about whether or not to go through with the wedding. Oh, and then there's the small matter that the cult are planning a terrorist attack on the wedding that, if successful will not only wipe out a sizeable portion of the great and the good of Kairos, but will also prevent any chance of the Montessario-Tereth alliance taking root. 
add into that mix the other potential players in this game that we know of, to wit The Unseen, Dr. Crop, and Heart of Snow, each with their own unknown agendas, then we have the potential for some significant shenanigans. Anyway, going back to my original I Ching divination, I was told, learn what others are doing before making a decision. Well, now the web know what they know, and it's time for them to decide what they're going to do with that information. Reactions have varied, to say the least. But at least, the spider reflects, there are some reactions. That has to count for something. Well, very interesting, Spider, but what the hell has any of it got to do with us? Tatters is entirely dismissive. The houses knocking crap out of some new unfortunate that happened to wander into their crosshairs? With all due respect, but so what? Sucks to be the free league, no doubt, but that's hardly our problem. We have other fish to fry. Trace is on her feet in an instant, all tense, lean muscle and white-duckled fury. Not our problem? Maybe you don't give a shit if hundreds of thousands of innocent people burn, but that's my home, my family. Pretty much makes it my problem, and yours too, if you're anything better than a dead-eyed, calcified bitch. She glowers for a long and deadly moment at Tatters, then rounds on the rest of the crew. Same goes for the rest of you shits. You good with seeing the Empire stamp out the one part of this key-forsaken world that has the stones to stand up to their shit? good with seeing decent men, women and children, not to mention babies, burn. Because I can tell you this without fear of contradiction. When the bombs start falling, they won't be too fucking discriminating. There's no shortage of shifty looks and avoided gazes at that comment. No one can deny the truth of her words. But here's the rub. None of that makes Tatter's statement any less true. The spider suppresses a smile as Valerian steps into the middle ground just as she had expected he would. For all his shady, self-serving shit, he's still the diplomat, the peacemaker, the piece of this broken puzzle that keeps it somehow still hanging together, even if it's only by unifying everyone else in their disdain for him. Ladies, ladies, please. There's no need for harsh words. We're all on the same side, after all. Let's just talk this through, understand the implications, and determine our best course of action, hmm? Sure enough, everyone in the room glares at him with equal degrees of hostility. Unity attained. Seemingly oblivious, Valerian ploughs on. The spider is fairly sure he's making this up as he goes along, randomly stumbling his way towards some undefined position of consensus, but she's known him long enough to realise that this is not necessarily a bad thing. He does tend to get where he needs to be, despite having no idea where he's actually going. Now, let us assume that everything we've heard is true. The houses Montessario and Tereth, along with the Seekers, intend to somehow turn the machine cult's explosives upon the rebels of the Free League. Well, that in turn will bolster the houses and weaken the Archdominar. It will also, by extension, weaken the cult, at least in the short term. With their stockpile gone, their ability to prosecute a war of terror upon the city will be compromised. Amazingly, no one interrupts, and keen to avoid that eventuality, Valerian ploughs on. But in truth, none of that really matters. What actually matters is what we want, am I right? 
because with the knowledge we hold, we have the power to steer the course of events in the direction most advantageous to us. We are the ones in control. Now, the reason we got ourselves into this whole mess in the first place was down to the decision to take a stand against both the cult and the unseen. And we made that decision because of the intelligence your source provided us with, Spider. That the cult were being backed by the unseen. The Spider nods, though she looks uncomfortable. She has, after all, only recently sold out that particular source to the Doomsinger, Heart of Snow. Yes, and that thought was terrifying, she agrees. The idea of a group of religious fanatics backed by an organization capable of infiltrating literally anywhere did not bear thinking about. We had to oppose them. Absolutely, Valerian replies. But throughout, there has been one question we've never quite been able to answer. The question we hoped would be answered by the Vale sisters. Why were the Unseen working with a gang of lunatics like the Cult of the Machine in the first place? He gazes around the group in triumph. Well, now we know, don't we? Not to enable a seizure of power by a mad sect here in the capital. That never seemed to make a lick of sense. No, with this news of war escalation, their plan is laid bare. All they wanted from the cult was access to their resources. Resources they could use in this assault on the Free League. The whole crew were left stunned by this assessment. Each one of them explores the possibility assembles the known facts, and each reaches the same cold, hard conclusion. It has the unmistakable ring of truth. Tatters frowns. But if this were true, that would mean... The spider finishes her thought for her. That one or more of the seekers of Droom, House Tereth, and House Montessario, have been compromised by the Unseen. been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider telling your friends about it or leaving a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It really is a huge help. You can find me on Twitter at TheLoneADV. You can email me at TheLoneADV at gmail.com or follow my blog at carlillustration.wordpress.com You can find show notes for this episode and all the others at theloneadventurer.podbean.com where I include any links mentioned in the episode as well as mechanics information. I also include a link to a full episode transcript. The story will continue in the next episode of The Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.